Welcome to the Sports Performance Professional Podcast, where we bring you the realities to the sports performance industry. And today we'll be going over our second podcast, and I'm really excited about this episode. But first, I want to show you, if you want to sign up for our email list, you can go to athletic, holistic with an H, systems.com. That's athletic, holistic systems.com. And I'll show you how to get to the web page really quickly. So if you go to that podcast tab up in the right-hand corner and you click it, it'll take you right to the landing page and you can see there's a microphone and I talk a little bit about what the podcast does. And then you can sign up for the email list. So you type your first name, your last name, shoot your email in there, press join, and you will get an email confirmation uh, that you were successfully signed up for the podcast or for our exclusive content. And so a little bit about myself. I'm the host. My name is Tim Smith. I've been a strength and conditioning coach for the past six years, and I'm currently a PhD student at Middle Tennessee State University, and I am majoring or I am getting my specialization in sport pedagogy, and I'm focusing on trying to develop a more robust infrastructure upon which to evaluate and predict coaching success. And that coaching success spans strength coaches, sport coaches, sports psychologists, sport nutritionists, uh, athletic trainers, anyone who has a direct or indirect responsibility for um, developing athletes or taking care of athletes. I think that my research will be able to open a new paradigm in evaluating and determining whether coaches' expertise are sufficient and the means, methods, and logic that they actually utilize in order to uh, develop an intervention. Uh, but moving forward, let me switch over to the PowerPoint if you're watching visually. Today's podcast episode number two is entitled are strength coaches digging their own graves a research article investigation and briefly what we do on this podcast is i go and i find a research article social media content uh, it may even be just an article written uh, by a blogger etc and i pick that article and i focus on it in its entirety and we're going to dissect it line by line section by section and i'm going to bring you what are the practical implications and what is the factual evidence for the claims that are being made in the paper and what does it mean for the field because a lot of claims may not actually be or may not actually create the outcomes that we think in reality and sometimes it's the opposite so there's been a lot of talk, especially from podcast uh, number one, that strength coaches may need to unionize and strength coaches may be underappreciated and marginalized. But some evidence points to the contrary that, again, the market dictates what our value is. And so today there was a landmark study done in 2013, well, 2011, actually, and it was published in 2013. And it was a, a uh, study that was done at uh, Oklahoma State University with their football program. So as we move forward, it's entitled Longitudinal Morphological and Performance Profiles for American NCAA Division I Football Players. Hey, that sounds crazy, right? Morphological, uh, you got some big words in there, but again, don't 
uh, be steered away by that. We'll go over uh, all those things as we kind of move forward. And so, again, as I said, the study was done at Oklahoma State University with their football program. Uh, and the purpose was to determine the changes in anthropomorphism. So basically physical characteristics or physical qualities and performance over a four year eligi uh, eligibility career for American football players. And so their sample size and data collection, and again, I'm just trying to give you the, the background before we really get into the details, is they uh, had a total of 92 offensive and defensive linemen, uh, and their evaluations basically over a seven-year period were included, and they had 64 skill position players, so in this case, wide receivers and defensive backs were included uh, in the analysis as well. So they took uh, their performance assessments, so let's say in different um, let's say performance tests, so vertical jump, 40-yard dash, et cetera. And they took those and they included those from this population size over a seven-year period. So what was assessed? So the assessments of strength included one repetition maximum on bench press, one rep on the squat, a one rep max on the power clean. They did the NFL 225, or basically how many times can you bench press uh, 225 pounds, so a repetition muscular endurance test. They also had power and speed measures, which were vertical jump and also the 40 yard uh, sprint. So the results quickly, um, so all measures or all strength measures improved significantly over the years of training. So all strength measures, that, that's critical because that'll be what we'll talk about uh, towards the end. Skilled players demonstrated a significant increase in power between years one and two, but at no other time. Linemen did not demonstrate significant changes in vertical jump. Speed did not change significantly for either group over the four years of training. So we see that strength is improving from year one to year four. We see that skilled players are demonstrating a significant increase in power from their freshman to their sophomore years. Linemen did not change their uh, peak power or their general power as expressed in the vertical jump significantly at any point in time in school from freshman to senior year. And speed did not change significantly for either group over a four year period. So basically they did not get faster significantly speaking, statistically significantly speaking over a four year period. And we'll talk about this later. So the conclusion that they drew um, from their study was these data provide a theoretical, predictable four-year rate of change in anthropometric strength and power variables for Division I football players. By having a longitudinal assessment of expected physical improvement, it may be possible for strength training personnel to determine those who may need additional attention in an area to more closely improve as expected. Additionally, it is suggested that elite athletes may possess genetically superior attributes and therefore, when selecting athletes, particular attention should be paid to the selection of those who have previously demonstrated superior speed and power. And this brings up the discussion of strength coaches would theoretically be heavily invested in player development. But on the contrary to, let's say, the conclusion of this study and various other studies in the literature, that more money and more value should be put into recruiting, as it just said by that uh, bottom line. So let's move forward. And I will warn you, again, if you, you know, have a light stomach, if you get wheezy when you hear facts, 
when you hear what the reality actually is in the field, it's going to make you feel uncomfortable and that's okay. But just know it's about to get real up in here. So if you need to check in with your doctor, please do, but let's proceed forward. So starting with the introduction, Division I football athletes are met with sophisticated physical training protocols designed by professionals in the field of strength and conditioning. The focus and emphasis of physical capabilities has resulted in the construction of multi-million dollar facilities and the hiring of experts, so in this case, strength coaches, nutritionists, psychologists, to develop individuals to their potential. Because sport is dependent on physical variables, training outside of sport-specific practices are dedicated to enhancing physical attributes deemed important in the sport. So we put a lot of emphasis, as I said previously, a lot of emphasis is being put on strength coaches, million-dollar facilities, having all this expert personnel to improve and help the athletes reach their genetic potential or their physical capacities. So I actually did a little background because they made a statement this and I not actually put millennial athlete in there, but they made a statement that the millennial athlete or athletes are stronger, bigger and faster and also more powerful than athletes of the past. And so I want to see if this claim is true. So I used um, NFL savant and I also use pro football reference. And so I had two categories to see indeed if athletes are much faster than previously uh, believed. And then also, were they coming to the table with more, uh, I'll say with more variables, with you know more sprinkles on top, uh, if you kind of want to put it um, or phrase it in that fashion. And so what I looked at was how many athletes were running under a 4-5-40 um, in the first decade, uh, basically the data that I could obtain. So that's from 2000 to 2010. And then what, how many athletes are running under a 4-5-40 in the second decade? So that's 2011 to 2020. And I put each stat here for you to look at. And actually, I'll, I'll zone it in just a little bit for you so you can see it a little better. Um, and what I found was in the first decade of 2000 to 2010, there were 640 players drafted and non-drafted who ran under a 4-5-40 um, in the 40-yard dash. Interestingly, from 2011 to 2020, there were only 568. So in the first decade, there were more athletes running under a 4-5-40 than the second decade by 128. So I said, okay, this is, you know, this is interesting. So then I went and I said, okay, how many athletes satisfied these prerequisites? So they were above 200 pounds. They bench pressed 225 above 10 reps. They had a 40-yard dash under 4.5. They had a vertical jump higher than 35 inches. And they had a broad jump greater than 126 inches. So 126 inches is roughly like 10.5, basically. And what I found was in the first decade from 2000 to 2010, there were 33 athletes who met each of these. Now, I will say a lot of athletes may have met you know, four out of five of those or um, all of them except one because maybe that year they didn't do the bench press, et cetera. So uh, there were more to choose from, but I only picked guys who had numbers in all of those categories. So again, in the first decade, 2000 to 2010, there were 33 athletes who met each of these categories. In 2011 to 2020, there were 77 
athletes who met each of these variables. So that's interesting that athletes are not necessarily uh, faster in an absolute manner, meaning it was 640 you know, guys who ran on a four or five uh, from the first decade. And now in the second decade, it's like 800. It's, it's more guys. It's not. Guys are coming with more uh, tangible traits. So in this case, they're, they're, they weigh more. They have more upper body strength. They tend to be powerful, more powerful, uh, but they're not necessarily faster, which goes to this notion that millennial athletes are stronger, faster, more powerful than the past and bigger. In this case, they are bigger, stronger, and potentially more powerful, but they are not, it's not translating and making up the speed difference because you would think that more guys would be running under a four or five uh, since training, as they're kind of alluding to, has become more sophisticated. But let's move forward um, as we go. Like, I, got I got quite a bit to cover, so I don't want you to fall asleep. I don't want to put you to sleep, so I got to keep this train moving. So does strength and size predict anything? And so, as I kind of said, you know, is strength, power, and hypotrophy due to the sophisticated training? And also, is the lack of increase in speed also a byproduct of this sophisticated training? So, as I kind of alluded to, Fewer athletes are running under a 4-5-40 this decade, but there are more athletes coming with bigger and stronger muscles with less twitch. So twitch means, you know, rate of force development, how quickly they can tap into that strength. So what are the trade-offs um, when talking about the emphasis of training? So you have skill versus physicality. Are guys less skilled today? And the emphasis has shifted to more physicality. So more muscle, more strength, because guys are less skilled, so they have to make up the gap by being more physical. Then you have technique versus athleticism. Is technique less proficient? And so there's been more emphasis shifted to raw athletic ability. Strength versus speed. Because speed is retrograding, is strength becoming more emphasized? So basically, guys are getting slow. I wouldn't say guys are getting slower, but they're just not running under four or fives at the same rate from the first decade. So because speed may be retrograding, if you're staying the same, then you're retrograding. Is that why strength is being more emphasized? Physiological versus neurological. It appears the nervous system is not responding to the current paradigm of training collectively, i.e., these training programs are not making guys faster as the claim that strength coaches make. And is this creating a shift to more hypotrophy? So if we're not making guys faster, we can at least make them bigger, can at least make them stronger. So with that said, I want to focus on really quick, a, a slight diatribe, just hold with me, slight diatribe. And I want to look at four studies to show if bigger and stronger is more predictive of on-field success. Because quickly, if a bigger and stronger athlete translates to more on-field success and it's predictive of that, then, hey, you, we actually may be on to something. But if it's not, sorry to take a drink. 
we may be doing the wrong thing and strength coaches may be marginalized for a reason. Let's move forward. This paper called the NFL Combine, does it predict performance in the National Football League uh, published in 2008? So they say the Combine clearly enjoys a significant degree of media hype and the rapt attention of professional football fans. Nonetheless, at least in the sample studied in this research, it clearly lacks any meaningful degree of predictive validity. One possible explanation for the relationship between overall combine performance and NFL performance lies with the numerous prep courses and other learning materials that exist to assist athletes in prepping for the combine. Of course, a key question is whether attending combine preparation programs actually does improve an athlete's combine performance. Other than the marketing claims made by the vendors themselves, there is no significant, no significant, there's no scientific evidence that their preparation improves combine performance. If in fact they do, such programs and materials could serve as performance equalizers, thus diluting the performance differences among combine attendees. Perhaps a more plausible explanation for the lack of correlation between combine performance and NFL performance is that combine exercises simply measure athletic skill and not and not actual football playing ability. I believe this is very intuitive. I think we I think a lot of people already know this. But it still doesn't answer the question of why it's being overemphasized. Again, is it more of a fanfare, fan engagement endeavor than it actually is as a real predictive tool for coaches to say, hey, based on what this guy does in the NFL Combine, that tells me he's going to be successful. You have to ask yourself, are they really still using it to gauge that? Don't, you know, don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Anyway, let's move forward. For example, one study identified 14 performance dimensions for the quarterback position through a job analysis, including coordination, running speed, vision, ability to learn, football sense, physical reactions, stress tolerance, and being a team player. Given the substantial gap between the skills assessed at that combine versus the skills actually required to successfully compete at the professional football level, the lack of relationship between combine performance and NFL performance, therefore, not surprising. Although the NFL combine remains a key element in the player selection process, excuse me, the overall findings from this study call into question the usefulness of the majority of exercises and suggest that the significant sums of money spent on the combine are not wisely spent. Conceivably, the predictive power of combine exercises could prove stronger for other draft classes and or NFL positions other than those examined in the study. But this study suggests otherwise. So quickly ask yourself, if the strength coach or the strength coach's job is to develop and create a physical monster, yet, yet, if the training is dedicated to improving these strength, power, and speed 
measures through assessments by assessing these annually, periodically, however you do it, then you have to ask yourself, if it's not predictive of anything, then how much value are we actually bringing to the table as strength coaches? Yeah, man, your guys are bigger, your guys are stronger. You guys pass the eye test, but what is it really indicative of? Again, how much money is this battle between how much money should you invest in player development, a strength coach, and recruiting, going out and finding talent? I digress. Let's move forward. In the broader context of the draft process, it should be noted that a potential player's physical performances at the combine are not the only criteria on which draft decisions are made. Hall of Fame San Francisco 49er coach Bill Walsh, for example, with the aid of assistant coaches and scouts, collected and analyzed game film as well as data gleaned from interviews with the players, coaches, and trainers. They also conducted the team's own interviews, intelligence tests, and personality tests. Walsh developed a comprehensive profile on players that would be given draft consideration by the 49ers. I think, again, that's intuitive that teams are doing much more investigation than just what a guy does at the NFL Combine. But, again, this is the 49ers. This is Bill Walsh, who says all organizations are doing this because player development really was important. There wouldn't be play the lottery free agency um, candidates as it would be today. Everyone's in the business of buying wins versus trying to develop in-house talent, trying to find those middle of the pack guys, those middle of the pack draftees, not undrafted, et cetera. And again, I could be making a claim that's not supported, but I'm saying is show me the evidence that teams are consistently, and there may, and there will be some, there'll always a couple who will be, who try to maximize the dollar value in the sense of, can we create a more efficient developmental system by focusing more so on research development and player development and less on throwing money at free agents? Someone bring that evidence to me. I stand and I'm open to being incorrect, but nonetheless, bring me the evidence. Let's move forward. Let's continue. Given the findings of this study, however, one should not infer that mental constructs are unrelated to athletic performance. Although in this study, the WPT failed to show a relationship with NFL performance, and I believe that's the, the wonder look test, but I could be wrong. Other studies have found correlations between psychological attributes and athletic performance. In a research review of personal selection practices in athletics, Humara, if I'm saying it right, found a number of psychological constructs related to various athletic endeavors, including aggression, leadership, coachability, and self-confidence. Further, Affiliation and conformity may predict athletic performance. For instance, an athlete low in conformity and affiliation may not perform well in team sports or under an autocratic coach. On the basis of his review, Humara, Humara, if I'm saying that correctly again, concludes that in the selection of athletes, in addition to assessment of an athlete's past performance and bio 
physiological data, decision makers should make greater use of psychological assessments, including the athletic motivation inventory, the test of attentional and interpersonal style, and the profile of mood states. I mean, they're gonna reveal all your demons. If you if you're an athlete, they're they're getting deep into the that closet of demons. So you better be careful. You better be careful. Anyway, another mental construct that has received considerable attention in the literature is anxiety and its relationship with athletic performance. A meta-analysis of the relationship among multiple forms of anxiety and athletic performance found self-confidence to be the strongest and most consistent predictor of performance. You hear that? Multiple, the relationship among multiple forms of anxiety and athletic performance found self-confidence to be the strongest and most consistent predictor of performance. Hey, nothing else needs to be said there. Self-confidence is a more correlated predictor of success on the field than those big muscles, all that weight on the bar. All that hooping and hollering in the weight room. Hey, I'm just saying, but let's continue. Given the research that has been published on the relationship between various constructs of cognitive ability and athletic performance, the obvious monetary risk of false positives and false negatives when selecting professional football players, it is surprising that the NFL has not used a more sophisticated approach to the measurement of mental constructs for combine participants. Possibly the use of higher level personality and cognitive ability assessments, for example, those discussed in this section would benefit the NFL by improving the fit between the combine hopefuls and the job of professional football. So I move on to the second study out of the four, and I believe that that one laid a lot of groundworks and a lot of perspective on the discussion. Now, the second study called Predictive Value of National Football League Scouting Combine on Future Performance of Running Backs and Wide Receivers, what they said was, quote, we analyzed the 2000 to 2009 combine data of running backs, so it was 276 running backs and 447 wide receivers, and their on-field performance for the first three years after the draft. Hold on, my computer. Okay, here we go. After the draft and over the entire careers, their entire careers in the NFL. Man, I can't read now. My eyes are crossed out right now. <laughs> Using correlation and regression analysis, along with a principal component analysis, the result of the analyses showed that they're accounting for the number of games played, draft position, height, and weight. The time on 10-yard dash was the most important predictor of rushing yards per attempt in the first three years. And the careers of running backs. So again, they found that out of everything they measured for running backs, the time on the 10-yard dash was most important predictor of rushing yards per attempt of the first three years and over the course of their careers. For wide receivers, vertical jump was found to be significantly associated with receiving yards per receptions for the first three years of 
uh, first their first three years and of their careers in the NFL after adjusting for the coverities above. So the coverities being weight, height, etc. Furthermore, height, and this is for wide receivers, was most important in predicting future performance of wideouts. Vertical jump, and something was even more predictive, height, how tall they were. Hey, hey, I'm not throwing shade on the shorties out there. No, I'm just playing. Uh, But let's move forward. The primary purpose of this study, actually, let me Am I already on my third study? Oh, hold on, let me go back. Apologies. Yes. All right, so that was the takeaway from the second study. Now, moving on to the third study. Let me get my act together. National scouting combine scores as performance indicators in the National Football League. Study done and or published in 2019. So let's see what they have to say. Quote, The primary purpose of this study is to investigate the relationship between specified national scouting combine scores and measures of performance by players by player position. A secondary aim was to determine whether correlated variables could predict player performance at the quarterback, running back, wide receiver, defensive end, defensive tackle and linebacker positions. Subjects in the study were combine participants between the years of 2005 to 2010 who subsequently played in the NFL. So for the numbers of players in each positional groups, there were 44 quarterbacks, 82 running backs, 116 wide receivers, 139 linebackers, 59 defensive ends, and 72 defensive tackles. Significant correlations were shown between at least one combine measure and on-field success at every position. Hierarchical regression showed combine measures could predict between 4% and 62% of the various for variance for individual on-field variables. Quarterback rushing yards were significant, significantly correlated with 40-yard time, counter-moving vertical jump, vertical jump power, vertical jump relative power, and horizontal power. And these factors accounted for 62.2% of the total variance. It's a lot. Horizontal power and vertical jump power were predictive of, of quarterback rushing attempts. Hey, for you fantasy football owners, hey, you need to hit up those, those teams, find out those vertical jumps or those quarterbacks. At running back, 40-yard time, single-leg jump, combined were predictive of total rushing yards, rushing attempts, and yards per game. Power variables were predictive of total tackles for defensive ends. I'm trying to under, it says 40 HP. I'm not sure what the HP stands for, but it's something related to their 40 yard times and their vertical jump power accounted for a total of 21% of the variance. And this is talking about uh, defensive ends. The current study suggests that combine tests are modest, modest predictors of future performance. Should the NFL change the current NFL scouting combine testing battery, the addition of horizontal and vertical power measurements, as well as position-specific skill tests, are recommended. Now, let's move to the final study before I get back to our original study. 
And this study is entitled, which was published in 2018, Performance of Future Elite Players at the NFL Football League Scouting Combine. Let me take a quick drink of water real quick. And quote, results of players earned on various NFL scouting combine drills and measurements, so height, body mass, 40-yard dash time, vertical jump, bench press repetitions, shuttle run time, and three-cone drill time, the position players play on the field, so looking at quarterbacks, running back, wide receivers, tight end, offensive line, defensive line, linebackers, defensive backs, and if players receive elite performance awards, so all pro selections and pro bowls in the future were collected. So they looked at drill, uh, combine drill and measurements, the positions the player played, and whether they received elite performance uh, awards. After analyzing the data, the results indicate that A, NFL quarterbacks that received all pro and pro bowl awards tend to be taller, way more, run faster in the 40, jump higher, complete more bench press reps, and are slower for the shuttle run and three-cone drill. So if your quarterback is moving on that shuttle run and that three-cone drill, hey, don't, 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 don't even look at him. No, I'm just playing. But that's interesting. B. All pro and pro bowl NFL running backs tend to weigh more, run the 40-yard dash faster, do not jump as high, complete more bench press reps, and complete the shuttle run and three cone drills slower. So interesting enough, NFL running backs also showed a similar uh, trend that they tend to be slower on the shuttle run and three cone drills, which is interesting. C. NFL wide receivers who are or were selected for the Pro Bowl or as all pros tend to be taller, goes back to two studies ago, way more, run the 40-yard dash faster, have a high vertical jump, and run the three-cone drill faster. Which, in this case, you get back to 40-yard dash time is, is tends to be a pretty good predictor in conjunction with other variables as a, a predictor or explaining the variance of success on the field in the NFL. But again, we're going to talk about that later. D, NFL tight ends that received all pro and pro bowl awards tend to be taller, way more, run the 40-yard dash faster, jump higher, complete more bench press reps, run the shuttle run slower, and complete the three-cone drill faster. E, all pro and pro bowl NFL offensive linemen tend to run the 40-yard dash faster, jump higher, are able to complete more bench press reps, and run both the shuttle run and three-cone drill faster. F, NFL defensive linemen who were selected as all pro and pro bowl players tend to be taller, way more, run the 40-yard dash faster, jump higher, complete more bench press reps, and run the three-cone drill faster, which, again, makes sense intuitively that offensive linemen and defensive linemen have basically same physical skill sets that they're performing well in. G, 
NFL linebackers who were named to the All-Pro and Pro Bowl teams tend to be taller, weigh more, run the 40-yard dash faster, jump higher, can complete more bench press reps, and run both the shoulder run and three-cone drill faster. NFL wide receivers that were selected for the Pro Bowl or as an All-Pro tend to weigh more, run the 40-yard dash faster, jump higher, can complete fewer bench press reps, and run the shuttle run slower, which is interesting. They tend to not have as much upper body strength. Uh, but again, we'll see that later on. They also run the shuttle run slower. Certified strength and conditioning specialists for college and professional teams will be able to use these results to help train and set performance goals for American football athletes with whom they work and train. Now, before I get back to the article, understand what he said at the bottom. So if we know what's predictive, what, you know, what makes up this predictive recipe for each position group, yet, as we've kind of already established in the original article that I'm reviewing, that power and speed are not being changed dramatically over a four-year period from freshman to senior year, yet you can't control for how tall someone will be. And for different positions, strength is a little bit more important. Let's say like for linebackers, they complete more bench press reps. But vertical jump tends to be important across the board. 40-yard dash tends to be important across the board. They're weighing more, so that's what's one positive, that athletes are weighing more and they're getting bigger, so that tends to be a, a positive correlator as well. But those other two, and even the shuttle run and three-cone drills, for some of them, appear to be important. Yet those aren't improving dramatically either. So moving forward, just keep that in mind. Put that in your pocket, pull that back out a little bit later. Now, back to the original article that we're discussing. Quote, although genetic predisposition cannot be discounted for nor accurately measured, the addition of state-of-the-art training protocols, certified training professionals, biomechanically precise training equipment, and monitored nutrition presumably play important roles in the reason why current football players are physically superior to those of the past. I kind of already um, debunked that a little bit for you. They're not faster this decade but they are coming to the party with more um you know with with with, with more uh, party goods offensive linemen and defensive linemen in the year 2000 were not stronger so in the bench squad and power clean than linemen in 1987 but they were significantly more powerful so strength for the most part has been universal since 1987 in offensive and defensive linemen you know the drink of water real quick how much of a factor, and I, and I actually proposed the question here, it's separate from the article, but I said, how much of a factor is strength really? If strength hasn't really changed dramatically, then of course we know power and speed come at higher premiums. But the point being is overemphasizing strength, and there's been some discussions on that lately. How much of a factor is it really? Because you tend to can guarantee that football athletes are going to be pretty strong. And so I continue with, how much of a factor is this really? When these sophisticated training protocols existed internationally, 
in other countries with less resources, funding and genetic variation. And when I mean genetic variation, I'm talking about how homogeneous or heterogeneous is the genetic variation within society. And the United States being very heterogeneous in the amount of ethnic backgrounds, et cetera, that you have a higher probability of getting different combinations that have predispositions for, let's say, a particular physical quality. Or in this case, predisposition for success at a particular skill, sprinting, jumping, et cetera, information processing. So a country that has less heterogeneity, uh, genetity, then has a lower chance and probability of getting those combinations. It just comes at a lower rate, is all I'm saying. So I'm asking how much of sophisticated training is really uh, accounting for the improvement or how big and strong athletes are when again, power training is not new. Velocity-based training is not new. Speed protocols are not new. You know, they were developed in the 60s, sometimes earlier, uh, first reported by the Soviet Union or the German Democratic Republic, et cetera. So, what we're calling sophisticated is old news in other parts of the world, but let's move forward. I want to bring up another study quickly that talks about, in this last slide, that talked about the genetic predisposition cannot be discounted nor accurately measured. Nor accurately measured. So in this study um, called the training process, planning, planning for strength, power training in track and field, part one, theoretical aspects published in 2015. Quote, every athlete does not progress to the elite level. There is no subtle substitute for innate talent, quote unquote, genetics. There are two aspects to this realization. First, there are genetically linked physiological characteristics that relate to superior performance. These Heritable characteristics range from higher testosterone concentrations in both men and women to differences in muscle fiber types. As a result of these genetic links, athletes with specific traits simply are able to perform better in specific sports. Kind of alluded to that already. Second is the relationship between heredity and the training window of adaptation. Everyone responds to a well-planned training stimulus. However, because of heredity, some athletes respond to the same program with greater adaptation and so are able to progress further than typical athletes. After that, athletes, excuse me, after that, athletes that have both traits are most likely to progress to the elite level. So understand that number one, you have to ask yourself about, again, the value of player development versus recruiting. Because there's equal opportunity to get better, but there's no such thing as equal outcome. The same training program will produce different results for two different athletes or for a group of athletes. So we have to get off this idea of equal outcome versus equitable opportunity. Everyone has an equal opportunity to improve because everyone's going to improve with a well-structured program, but not the outcomes. So it depends on where the athlete starts, but we'll continue to move forward and talk about this a little later. Now, back to the article. Quote, 
assessment of the efficacy of the training and the consequential physical development are measured regularly throughout the year as part of the strength and conditioning program via various strength, speed, and agility assessments. So I'm going to go over briefly, and actually let me zoom this in a little bit, just in case you are watching the PowerPoint. Typical testing in football or typical testing uh, variables in football are bench press, squat, power clean, vertical jump, 40-yard sprint measured in 10-yard increments or 20-yard increments. They get time splits, et cetera. The literature supports that improving physical capabilities as expressed from those tests improve physical performance. So basically, improving in the vertical jump could improve, let's say, your physical performance and activities on the field that require jumping, basically. These tests typically occur at predetermined times over the annual cycle, four phases that each have different training objectives. So basically it's broken up into four different phases on the annual cycle. So you have in-season, which is typically August to December, off-season, January to March, spring training, March to April, summer, May to August. Off-season and summer typically are designed to increase strength, ability, or strength, agility, and flexibility. In-season and spring training attempts to maintain what was developed and peaked for the athletes. So they're trying to maintain a peak, or they're trying to peak. Maybe it's different uh, for each program, uh, but they're trying to maintain what's developed as well. So maintenance. Is the purpose showing up in training results. So when I mean purpose, I'm meaning if the purpose of the program is to improve sprint speed, is this actually showing up in the training results? Quote, with respect to strength, power, and speed changes within the phases, Moore and Fry found that some of the improvements generated at one stage of training diminished in other stages. For instance, over a 15 week period, inclusive of A, four weeks of concentrated strength training, B, five weeks of Okay, sorry, I got logged out for a quick second, but hey, I'm not gonna let it break. My, uh, my rhythm. But continuing, B, five, actually, let me start over. For instance, for instance, over a 15-week period, inclusive of A, four weeks of concentrated strength training, B, five weeks of strength training and intense conditioning, and C, 30 days of spring training measures of squat, power clean, agility, and vertical jump increased after the initial four weeks of weight training, but sprint speed did not. However, all performance variables digressed to baseline after the end of spring training. So even a 15-week program, not even, but a 15-week program that was broken up into stages and they had improvements or their measurements were taken in different tests after the initial four weeks of weight training. But the sprint speed did not improve. And also, all those measures return back to baseline. 
after spring training. Let's move forward. In one study, Stoughton and I'm not going to say this other guy's name or the other uh, say guy, the other uh, researcher's name to not butcher it. Examine the longitudinal effect of a college strength and conditioning program incorporating speed, strength, and agility drills over a four-year period and concluded that the greatest number of significant improvements occurred during the first year of training with inconsistent improvements among the various tests between years two and four. They found bench press to improve significantly over all four years in all groups. So this is another piece of evidence, another study finding that improvements are happening for the most part from freshman to sophomore years, and they become very stagnant after that. So is this a byproduct of sophisticated training? Because if sophisticated training is leading to the results that we're not looking for, then why is it not changing? Let's say you find that out from year two to three, then there should be a difference from year three to four. No, it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff happening over and over again. Anyway, let's continue. Most studies measure physical improvement in football players cross-sectionally, so basically specific points, uh, a specific point in time, excuse me, or limited to a single year. So basically, they're not looking at improvement longitudinally, year in, year out. What are the measurables? Let's look at these collectively in succession versus just isolating a point in time and running with that and not going and not tracking it over again a longer period of time is basically what it's getting at. Miller collected data including body mass, body fat, power clean, bench press, squat, vertical jump, and sprint times on Division I football players at different phases from 1993 to 1998. See, see the point here? Different phases. It wasn't tracked um, continually. Um, but anyway, and found that body mass was positively associated with increases in bench press and squat and that body fat was negatively related to performance in the 20 and 40 yard sprint. Additionally, the author suggested that the greatest adaptation period for strength gains is in the early stages of players' college careers. Again, another study hinting at the same conclusion. And this is not looking good for strength coaches. It's not, but let's move, let's move forward. And actually one more thing, body mass was positively associated with increases in bench press and squat. So getting the athlete bigger, emphasizing weight gain is biased towards improving strength, but not speed. Because weight, obviously weight gain is not created equal. We're talking about putting on muscle and not fat, but you'll find out a little bit of details on that a little later. Let's move forward. Why is the longitudinal assessment important that was utilized in this study that's different from all others? Quote, to date, little information exists that provides professionals a means by comparing expected anthropometric and physical gains with actual gains. It would benefit the area of player development to have information specific to 
average expected improvement from year one to year four in a player's career to better determine the appropriate types of individual intervention needed to eliminate below average progress. I would completely agree there. By obtaining accurate longitudinal data on progress, professionals in the field will be able to compare assessment data for each individual with such standards. Although it is well known that physical properties will improve with training and maturity, the normal extent of improvement over time has yet to be fully determined. I would agree there. If I'm a coach, I would want to know if I have an athlete run through this program, what can I expect and what areas will they improve? Like how fast will they improve and to what extent will they improve on average? Especially if you can profile the athletes as well. Like, you know, there's certain characteristics that yield these types of results. And you can maybe you do it on, you know, the five-star guys. This is how they improve, four stars, three stars. I mean, you can, you know, hierarchy or structure in a way and cluster in a way um, to fit that. But that would be a very good question. And a strength coach should know that as well. Again, are we playing as strength coaches into being marginalized? Are we digging our own graves? Because if someone looks at the data and the finer, you know, and the, look at the hard data and they look at the details and read between the lines, I talk on this later. What is our value? Hey, let's continue. <laughs> I got that warning message up there. You sure you, sure you want to continue? <laughs> you sure you want to continue? Uh, but, quote, the purpose of this study was to determine, and this is going over more of the in-depth purpose. The purpose of the study was to determine the impact of strength and conditioning programs or a strength and conditioning program on the anthropometric characteristics and physical performance changes in NCAA Division I football players over their collegiate careers. Therefore, data on incoming freshman players were longitudinally tracked to assess changes in performance variables over a four-year period. So we're about to move into the method section. Now, warning, are you sure you want to cancel the order and receive a refund? I can't refund your time, but you sure you want to move on? After everything you've heard now, you want to move on. Let's go. Methods. Currently, Little data exists that can be used as a measuring device for comparing expected physical progress with actual progress. To obtain average anthropometric and physical changes over a four-year playing career, we examine players for the first, and this is freshman, assessments to the fourth, so senior, uh, senior year, preseason, so August, testing session over a seven-year period. So basically, they obtained average anthropometric, so physical, again, physical characteristics, physical qualities, and the changes of those qualities, so power, strength, speed, over a four-year playing career, a freshman, from freshman to senior year, uh, at the preseason stage in August, over a seven-year period. Theoretically, August is the time when the athletes reach their competitive preseason peak, both in strength and speed. Other testing sessions were available, but because of inherent changes in the times the athletes were tested, 
It was decided that the most consistent data would be found after the summer training session. So it's going over why they chose August. Summer conditioning included four days of one hour weight training per week. Uh, weight trainings like sessions per week with an additional 45 minutes devoted to speed, agility, and conditioning. The full summer training period extended approximately nine weeks. Freshmen were tested on arrival on campus without the benefit of organized summer training. Again, I'm just giving you the de details. We divided players into groups by positions because players in selected pos positions are distinctively or distinctly different in anthropometrics and selected performance variables. The positions were offensive line, defensive line, and also running back, defensive backs. So just explaining why they broke it up the way that they did. Let's move forward. Subjects. Statistically, so they statistically analyzed pre-existing data collected by the strength and conditioning staff over a seven-year period, so from 2005 to 2011. For those players who entered in 2010, only three years of data were available. Subjects' age ranged from 18 to 24. And again, 92 linemen, 64 skilled position players. For both linemen and skilled players, the number of participants was 48 freshmen, 45 sophomores, 35 juniors, and 28 seniors. Junior college transfers were eliminated from the study because they were not true freshmen entering into the program. I appreciate that they did not include JUCO transfers. Players with documented injuries resulting in restrictive training and re rehabilitations for over 30 days within the last year were also not included. So again, they're siphoning those out who may um, change the data. Quote, their procedure. As each freshman class was tested, their data were added to all previous freshman results and each year of participation was combined for each. The August phase of testing was used because theoretically this reflects the time that each athlete reports an optimal playing condition. Additionally, because it has been suggested that some conditioning variables increase while some decrease depending on time of testing, we believed that greater accuracy would be had by eliminating the time sensitive confounding variables. So this is why they eliminated athletes with injuries and they also based red shirts or red shirts were grouped by academic status and not eligibility status to provide accurate time frames equal to those not redshirted. So they're accounting for, again, things that would cause the data to change. And, oops, my bad. Sorry, I hit the, I actually hit the phone on my mic. Moving forward, data were grouped by year, freshman, sophomore, junior year, of participation and included height, weight, percent body fat, one, rep rep one repetition max, and the bench press that did the standard National Football League 225 bench rep test. And they also did a one rep max on the power clean, a one rep max on the squat, vertical jump, and a 40-yard sprint. Again, typical to combine measures. 
Strength training periodization was designed as a six-week cycle beginning at the end of the football season, lasting to spring training. And again, they're going over the training program that was implemented by the strength staff. Season lasting to spring training, so winter, we went over the, the annual cycle, so that winter cycle, and in an eight-week cycle from the end of the regular academic year up to preseason practice in August. Frequency of training was four days a week, Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Initial strength training consisted of high repetitions, low resistance for the first two weeks, mid-range repetitions, mid-range resistance for the following two to three weeks, low repetitions, high resistance for the remaining time, speed and agility remained trained, <coughs> excuse me, speed and agility remained, uh, why is that sentence we reading weird? Speed and agility training remained varied. I, I, had, I had the words uh, out of order. Anyway, speed and agility training remained varied in activity, but changed minimally in frequency and duration during the cycle. Initial aerobic training was not highly emphasized, but increased as the cycle progressed. In-season weight training consisted of three, three days per week, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. Sundays were primarily a flush day with emphasis on high repetitions and low volume. Tuesdays included Olympic lifts and heavier weight. Thursdays included lighter weights with high repetition for core and upper body only. Body fat was measured using bod pod. Vertical jump was measured using Vertec. Power and speed measures were measured on separate days than strength measures. Uh, the 40-yard dash was measured and assessed with athletic, athletic electronic timers. So I'm not going to talk about the program at all, but I just want you to make sure you're keeping what I'm saying about the training program in context. It's not telling you the exercises they did uh, for the most part as far as exercise selection, but it's really giving you set rep scheme and what they potentially were doing. So just keep that in mind because remember what the claims were in some of the other studies for whatever reason, speed was not increasing. You have to consider that power was not increasing significantly. And thirdly, um, they also found, uh, what was the other finding? Speed was increasing. Power was not increasing. Um, I can't, I can't remember. If I remember it, I'll come back. Um, to it, but it, uh, one of the studies found something um, else that that's important from basically that could be an inclination of the training programs. But moving forward, so their statistical analysis really quick. So they used repeated measures, ANOVA, so analysis of variance to compare anthropometric and performance variables variables over time. So uh, an ANOVA or an analysis of variance compares means across one or more variables that are based on repeated observations. It is a test to prove an assumed cause and effect relationship between the independent variables, if any, and the dependent variables. So they also use F ratios. So the F ratios were analyzed. And so an F ratio finds out if the means between two populations are significantly different. And it tells you if a group of variables are jointly significant. So a p-value less than 0.05 was used to determine statistical significance. 
And basically what this means is if you have a significant result, it means that your results likely did not happen by chance. If you don't have statistically significant results, you throw your test data out because it doesn't show anything. So they made sure that they had a p-value less than 0.05. Um, and you, you have, uh, I can't remember specifically, but I think it's 0.10, so less than 0.10, less than 0.05, and then less than 0.001, and 0.001 being the strongest correlation. So um, this is a good, a good factor that they chose. Also use, they also use bivariate correlations to determine the existence of relationships between two different variables, X and Y. And so basically when I say X and Y, I'm talking about what are your variables for both your X and your Ys? In this case, your dependent or independent variables. Y being your dependent, X being your independent. It shows how much X will change when there's a change in Y. So again, this is their entire statistical analysis and I just wanna provide a little bit of background for that. Now, results. Excuse me. <coughs> In general, strength increased significantly over time for both linemen and skill positions. However, measures of maximum power and speed did not. Percent body fat decreased significantly in linemen, but not in skill positions. Primarily because first-year linemen tended to report over fat whereas skilled players reported in a lean condition. And this is the chart or the data that they presented. And you may not be able to see it super, you know, like, cause it's not as close um, online, but I want to just provide this so you can, if you do want to see it, you see the data, but I'm explaining and I'll say it all verbally of what this table actually found and what was significant and what was not significant. So looking at the, the results for the offensive and defensive linemen. Lineman body mass measured or averaged measured or averaged. So lineman body mass averaged 128.7 kilograms the first year and increased progressively each year with the fourth year players being significantly heavier than those in years one to three. So freshman and junior year. No significant weight differences were noted among players from freshman to junior year. No significant changes in height were noted when comparing freshmen through their senior years. While weight increased slightly each year, the lineman became significantly leaner from freshman to sophomore year. Freshman year lineman averaged 22.5% body fat and senior year lineman averaged 20.6% percent body fat, which shows about an 8.4 decrease on average uh, in body fat percentage from freshman to senior year. One rep bench press for freshmen were significantly less than years for sophomore through senior year. And the mean for sophomore year was significantly less than those for junior and senior year. The largest gain occurred between freshman year and sophomore year, so a 7.5 increase. The improvement from freshman year to senior year represented a 17.8% gain. I'm talking about um, bench press. This is bench press. Significant improvements were also recorded in the 225 rep max test 
between the freshman and junior years and also the freshman and senior years. And also there was a, a statistical significant change between sophomore and senior year. And, and, and again, just let me know, let, let me know as if someone can actually respond. I know I'm saying a lot of numbers and a lot, et cetera, but I'm just giving you what the results are so we can discuss it later on. So just bear with me. Positive correlations between body mass and one rep max bench press and body mass and the NFL 225 bench press assessment were noted. So there was a positive correlation between body mass, one rep bench max, uh, basically bench, uh, their max on bench press, and then also body mass and how many reps they could do with 225. So there was a significant improvement in their squat between their freshman year and their sophomore, junior, and senior years. And the squat mean for the sophomore year was significantly less than that for their senior year. The largest gain in squat occurred between their first or their freshman to their sophomore year, about a 15.6% increase, which is a lot. That's a lot based on uh, weight. I mean, that, the average is about 32.8 kilograms. So, I mean, you're looking at, you know, 65, 70 pounds from one year and their squat total. The total improvement from the first to fourth years was and first to fourth freshman and senior year was about 27.4% in total, which represent a significant increase. So they significantly were getting stronger, statistically speaking. There was significant increase in one web power clean between the freshman and junior year, with the largest gain occurring between the freshman and sophomore year. Take a quick drink real quick. Doing a lot of talking here. Additionally, year two was significantly different from year four, so senior year. Lyman averaged about 127.2 kilograms their freshman year and 147.6 kilograms their senior year. I'm talking about the power clean here, one red max. So it's about a 16% increase in power clean over a four-year period. With respect to maximum power output, Vertical jump distances increased slightly, but not significantly from their freshman year to their senior year. So freshman year is about 25.8 inches. Senior year is about 26.4 inches, which represented about a 2.3% gain over four years. Similarly, vertical jump power increased at minimal levels over the four-year period, about 2.2%. For the 40-yard sprint, times improved minimally each year. However, no significant improvement was noted. Averages from the freshman year to their senior year was basically 5.36 in the 40 as for, uh, freshman, and it was 5.17 as seniors. So about you know, two milliseconds. There was a negative correlation between body mass and vertical jump and the 40-yard sprint. And again, you may say, hey, you know, uh, linemen don't need to improve their sprint speed. And I would say, why would speed hurt? In this case, you would say, well, what's the trade-off here? Do we get them faster and they're smaller, but the demands of their position requires them to be, you know, bigger? We'll talk about that later. 
before you, you know, before you attack me, we'll talk about it later. Now, here is your data, data table for the wide receivers and the defensive backs. And I'll go over this uh, verbally as well. Quote, wide receivers and defensive backs. Actually, let me go back. Let me start off real quick. Okay. Wide receivers and defensive backs, body mass averaged 79.9 kilograms their freshman year and increased significantly from years one or a freshman year to their sophomore to senior years with no significant differences between their weight and their sophomore year to their senior year. So they had big changes from year one to year two, but not so much from year two to year four that were statistically significant. No significant changes in height were noted when comparing first or freshman and senior years uh, as far as their height. Their height didn't change significantly, you know, over their freshman and senior years. Body mass changed little from years two through four and body composition reflected similar non-significant changes. For the one rep bench press, their uh, strength improved significantly from their freshman to sophomore years and from their sophomore year to their junior year, but not from their junior year to their senior year. Bench press averaged about 105.5 kilograms in their freshman year to 141.5 kilograms in their senior year, about a 34.4% increase, which, which I mean, in my opinion, it, one, actually, it's higher than the offensive lineman as well, so keep that in mind. And you may ask this because defensive backs are and wide receivers are coming in if, as I kind of alluded to, that weight or mass was correlated to upper body strength in the bench press and the 225 uh, rep max. Then in this case, if wide receivers are coming in weighing less, then they would have more room for improvement and the bench press let's explains the difference and the scores of why they were attaining more upper body strength relative to their weight because they had more to gain. Let's move forward. For the NFL 225 Ritmax test, significant improvements were seen from year one or freshman year to junior year and from junior year to senior year and between sophomore year and senior year. And the one rep max for the squat, they improved significantly as wide receivers and defensive backs from their freshman year to their sophomore year and from their freshman year to their junior year and also senior year as well. So they improved their squat max from freshman to sophomore. I'm, I'm saying is this is statistically significant from sophomore, or excuse me, from freshman to junior year was also significant. And also from freshman year to sophomore year, uh, excuse me, freshman year to senior year was also significant. Also significant gains were recorded between sophomore year and senior year. So about a 14% change. I mean, I'm even getting confused uh, trying to run these back to you. Significant improvement for the power clean was noted from year one to year two, but not additional significant changes occurred 
Continued improvement was noted from year one to year four with the total gain, this is the power claim, of about 26.5% in the power claim from their freshman to their senior years. Over the course of four years, vertical jump height increased from 32.7 inches to 35.07 inches. But the, but the only significant difference was between year one and the following years, indicating a minimal lack of improvement for years two through four. So they were getting statistically significant changes in vertical jump from their freshman to sophomore year. But from sophomore year to senior year, the changes were not significant, statistically speaking. Vertical jump power reflected a significant increase between years one and two, but failed to change significantly thereafter. So they weren't changing their vertical jump power either, even if their absolute force production of the vertical jump was not uh, increasing. The 40 yard times improved slightly, but not significantly from year one to year, uh, for, from year one to their senior year. So it was about 4.58 average um, of the freshmen coming in. And then when they left, it was about a four or five flat. So just keep that in mind. Vertical jump, improving from freshman to sophomore year, but not so significantly from sophomore to senior year. Same with their vertical jump power. It increased from freshman to sophomore, but not after that. And then for the 40 yard times, there was no significant change. Um, and it was a small, it was a actually, it was a slight improvement, but not statistically at any point on their arrival from freshman to senior year. A negative correlation existed between body mass and vertical jump and speed. So interestingly enough, that body mass is correlated to improved strength, let's say in the bench press and on the 225 max and in the squat, et cetera. But it's negatively for wide receiver and defensive backs and offensive linemen, def de defensive linemen, body mass is negatively correlated to vertical jump and speed. So again, is making the athletes bigger actually going to improve their speed no you're trading off speed for getting them bigger and i already brought up some of the things we talked about for these trade-offs skill versus physicality technique versus athletic ability etc now we're getting to the end here actually got seven more slides here and we're and we'll be done we'll be out of here so for the discussion i asked or i proposed is this a reason strength coaches are marginalized? It is axiomatic, axiomatic. Uh, what's the best way? I actually looked this up yesterday. Um, hold on quickly. Because I want to make sure that I don't provide... So axiomatic is unquestionable or self-evident. So again, I wanna make sure that everything is clear. So it is self-evident or axiomatic that young athletes just entering college are still maturing physically. No clear rubric can predict the age at which an individual reaches his or her maximum physical potential because of the undeniable factors that genetics play an individual maturity potential and in, in, in addition to the individual's personal commitment and drive. 
So I propose, so this is separate from the article, an athlete's physical ceiling is determined by their initial starting point. And so what I wanted to allude here is, and I go back to why were there less athletes who were meeting all five of my categorical? So I said, you know, 200 pounds, runs faster than a four or five, can bench press 225 above 10 reps. You know, I'm saying is, should that be something that's more attainable if we are actually involved in implementing sophisticated training? Should those actually be pretty reachable outcomes for most athletes at the Division One Power Five level? And the answer is it's happening at a higher rate, but that could be explained by something else, not, not necessarily the training, because the training is not making them faster. But again, bodybuilding coaches can get athletes bigger, powerlifting coaches can get athletes stronger. So it can't be because strength coaches are, you know, head and shoulders, better programmers, um, and better able to implement programs because they're strength coaches and they have knowledge because again someone who specializes in bodybuilding can do the same thing as you see with charles pollock when training nfl athletes and various other bodybuilding coaches who, who train uh hollow athletes west side barbell you know etc so we, we can't use that as the measuring stick but what i wanted to infer here is that if an athlete starts let's say at a 13 inch vertical prior to training then is it realistic to increase that by you know, 30 inches. And I say again, let's say that this is post puberty and they haven't started trade training. They have a 13 inch vertical. You know, you could, you could definitely get them to maybe 30, but their physiological ceiling may be somewhere around there. And you may not ever get them to a 35 inch vertical. It just may not happen, especially based on how you progress in states of training. Let's say an athlete has a 22 inch vertical post-puberty and they haven't started formal training and you increase them by 20 inches you know they're going to be over a 40 inch vertical and that may be attainable that's actually realistic because of where they start so that's what i meant by athletes physical ceiling is determined but remember i, I said remember but bonder chuck showed that if you do use over intensified programs with young athletes you can actually lower that ceiling because you're imprinting the nervous system so that's a whole nother conversation but you have to understand that too. And this is why the focus of my study is on evaluating coaches because if we're using inappropriate means for the level of the athlete, we're actually hurting their potential. So I just want to, you know, want that to marinate. That the biggest, the biggest detriment to an athlete's potential may be a coach who's trying to get results quickly. Keep that in mind. The question is, if sport coaches and strength coaches are training athletes to be faster, why is it not happening? That's my question. If athletes are not getting significantly faster, is this creating a lopsided value between player development and recruiting? Which one's more valuable based on what I presented here or based on what the authors found? What is the market value for a strength coach to develop speed versus an assistant coach to recruit speed? What's the market value for that? A bodybuilding coach can get athletes bigger and leaner. A 
powerlifting coach and an Olympic weight uh, weightlifting coach can get the athlete stronger and powerful. We don't need a strength coach to, to do those things. What is the purpose of the strength coach? It's not, it's not to get them bigger, strong. Clearly not because you could just hire someone else to do that who specializes in that area. And that can be obtained by different means. So what is the purpose of a strength coach? If the athletes are not getting faster. And we're not going to say that, oh, this is just one study. This is one place. No, it's not. That's why it's statistically significant because it's generalizable for what may be happening at other universities, at other organizations, at other places. And is the training not working, not getting the outcomes we're looking for because the training is not meeting the laws of specificity. The training has to go to another level, to another level of understanding Apparently, after that first year, that freshman year for athletes, for that sophomore year, generalized exercises appear to be negatively correlated or have no correlation to improvement in the skills they were looking to improve. Power, explosive strength, speed strength, sprint speed, jumping ability, agility, cutting, etc. They need more specialized training and not specialized training in the sense of, okay, we need to add more intensity to general exercises, more specialized training in the sense of duplicating three areas, range of motion, same neuromuscular pathway, same muscle contraction regime, or type of contraction. Let's move forward. So health risk for linemen were brought up in the study because I talked about previously before that weight or mass for offensive linemen and defensive linemen were correlated to increases in strength and also the demands of the position they want linemen you know linemen to be bigger for various reasons but again we have to think about the athletes as well and i'm talking you know i'm talking to excuse me this, you know, the sports nutritionist here on staff, et cetera. We have to consider what the trade-offs are and put the best, put the athletes in the best situation. So, quote, for several decades, body mass for linemen has increased significantly and systematically, whereas wide receiver and defensive backs have largely remained the same. We found that freshmen reported to camp with an average body mass of 128 kilograms, so 128.7 kilograms, not significantly different from second or third year players. However, however, they carry significantly more fat than second-year players. In the present study, linemen tended to fall in the overweight category for male players between the ages of 20 and 40, 19 to 25% body fat. And wide receiver and defensive backs fell in the healthy range between 8 and 19% body fat. Similarly, Matthews and Wagner, in a 2005 study, involving Division I football players found that offensive linemen and defensive linemen averaged 27.6 and 22.1% body fat, respectively, concluding that offensive linemen were obese based on body fat more than 25%. I want you to think about that. Kaiser, in a study 
of freshman Division I football players found that offensive linemen reported at an average of 22.3% body fat in comparison to wide receivers and defensive backs who averaged 107 and 10.5% respectively. Another study by Noel, or no, yeah, Noel, found that Division I linemen averaged more than 25% for body fat and that the fat was largely centered in the abdominal region, noting that abdominal fat carries strong relationship to ischemic heart disease, I'm saying that right, and stroke. Again, let that marinate. We're pushing more weight, in the case, non-functional weight on linemen because of the nature of the position that's increasing their health risk. Oh, well, you know, the athletes, they got to know what these trade-offs are, et cetera, but is anyone actually telling this to them? And how does this set them up for when they stop playing? Especially when a majority of these guys are not, they're not going to make it professionally. So they have to deal with the repercussions that are put on them at the universities. Man, you got to eat, you got to eat, yeah, you got you to eat, you know, four burgers, et cetera. I, I remember football team when they used to come in the cast when I was in uh, college. You know, it's triple burgers. It's, 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 it's four patty burgers. Give me two of them. Plate of fries. I got to put this weight on. I got to keep this weight on. So you got, you really got to ask yourself questions, but let's move forward. Two studies found that division one football players diagnosed with metabolic syndrome were all obese, making them more at risk for insulin resistance than leaner players. Players in speed related positions and linemen have been found to have a 14 and 46 percent higher metabolic syndrome respectively than average college males the excessive portion proportion of body mass and fat of linemen increases the susceptibility of heart-related injuries because of higher core temperatures in comparison to lean players leaner players also sweat rates are higher in linemen than in, in uh backs so running backs defensive backs wide receivers which makes dehydration a possible issue. So again, th this is nothing that I wanted to discuss in depth, but I'm just saying you have to evaluate this, that you know it's a type of culture that the offensive linemen obviously have to be in where the notion is you know, bigger is better, and we want you to put on the non-functional weight that actually has a trade-off. Remember, there's, there's, you cannot say stuff in a blanket statement. And there's also no black and white meaning. There's always a trade-off. So again, you know, athletes just need to understand that and then they need to be supported in ways where what is the best for your health, but also the best for maximizing your potential on the field. And this is what I'm saying. I'm, all I'm saying is, is maybe a new age athlete or a new age offensive lineman is one that tries to reach that genetic capacity as far as muscle mass. And then they get to a fat mass that is more manageable. But again, maybe I'm completely wrong, but these are some discussions that should be had or there should be um, other things in place later on. Moving forward, the largest gains in strength occurred between a player's first and second years, freshman and sophomore year. For Lyman, the gains from year one to year two were squat, bench press, 225 max rep, 
and power clean, with the one exception for linemen occurring in the NFL 225 uh, max rep test, where the increase from years one to two was 20.3%, and the increase from years two to three was 23.8%. For wide receivers and defensive backs, the largest gains from years one to two were 225 NFL max rep test, bench press, power clean, and squat. A large range between individuals was noted in the wide receivers and defensive back. This was because some players were unable to complete one full repetition of 225 um, during their first year. So this explains one reason why they uh, had such an improvement in their upper body strength because some of them couldn't even bench 225 when they first showed up. And therefore, averages of zero were recorded and the players were tested with less weight. For both linemen and wide receivers and defensive back, the greatest gains over the four-year period occurred in the NFL 225-pound max rep test. Linemen increased 67%, while the wide receivers and defensive backs increased 192.7%. Additionally, large gains were found in squat, bench press, and power clean for both groups. Again, things that may not be predictive or are clearly not predictive of on-field success, but they're improving. The variables reflecting power changed little in either of the two groups, with the exception of the improvement generated by the wide receivers, defensive backs between years one and two, and the vertical jump, which was about 4.6%. Wide receivers and defensive backs demonstrated a significant surge in power between years one and two, but not thereafter, and linemen did not significantly increase in power over the four years of training. Research suggests that the exception of reducing fat weight, significant increases in speed are difficult to achieve. Now, is that because of this study, or is that what the popular belief is? Is that what the, the global belief in sports is? You cannot develop speed. But clearly, they don't believe it at the college level. That's why they emphasize recruiting. So I said, and this is me separate, separate from the article. I said, this can't be true. Could a track coach who specializes in sprints get these players faster over the same four years? Ask yourself. Take out, take out the strength coach. Put in a track and field coach who specializes in sprints. Would the athletes get faster? I'm just letting you think. Throw in a bodybuilding coach. Take a strength coach out, throw in a bodybuilding coach. But the athletes get bigger. Put Louis Simmons in there. Will they all get faster? Not faster. Will they all get uh, stronger? Let's move forward. Of course. And I'm saying, of course, they would get faster. Because we see that, what, sprinters get faster over four-year Olympic cycles all the time. So I'm saying is, what a track and field coach, under the conditions and the constraints of, you know, practices, et cetera, would they be increasing their speed? I would say the probability would probably be yes. Now, would it be statistically significant? That'd be, that would be interesting. Let's continue. Back to the article, these data suggest that speed cannot be significantly improved in the elite year in the in elite athletes over four years of training. In the present study, speed improvement in linemen was only 2.7%, and in wide receivers and defensive backs was 1.7%. So linemen actually got faster, but because they were much more slower as well, and then they had positive 
um, improvements in body mass, which we saw their body mass was negatively uh, correlated with 40. So they probably got faster because they were getting leaner. And wide receivers was only 1.7%. So think about it. A 1% improvement for a high-level sprinter is, I mean, mean, that's a great year. Each year. So on a four-year cycle, they're looking to have a 4% improvement. And a team sport athlete, that was 1.7. Is that realistic for a team sport athlete? Maybe so. I don't know. But in my opinion, we have to test the laws of specificity and see if we still get the same outcome because it may not be. I just, again, I, I would just have to be, have, it's hard pressed, but again, there's, there's really no literature to, to look at that programming. But let's continue. The larger change in alignment was positively correlated with a reduction in fat, as I kind of stated. To predict success in college football, coaches need to be able to assume what potential increases in physiological variables can be expected. Although speed and power are largely a contribution of genetics, it is felt that strength is the variable that can be improved significantly. And this is me talking again. So like I'm putting my questions down separate from the article. Is the study highlighting the reality that athletes at the collegiate level have capped out their speed ceilings specific to football and the only attainable outcomes are strength and hypotrophy? So is this a case that the athletes have already reached that physical their, their physical potential? As I said, it's, it's based on starting place. Have the athletes they recruited already reached that ceiling? And so the only thing you can focus on tangibly is strength and hypotrophy. Remember, we tend to focus on things that we can control. And if we feel like we can't control speed or that outcome, then we focus on other areas that we can, like weight. Well, coach, they're getting bigger and stronger, coach. Or is this indicating the lack of knowledge of applied biomechanics, applied kinesiology, and specialized training in the sports performance industry, even at the Power 5 level? So if we took a survey not even a survey, if we tested strength coaches and sport coaches' knowledge of biomechanics, kinesiology, physiology, and I'm talking about applied, and special strength training, what do you think those scores would be? So this is what I'm referring to. We got to really ask the right questions. This means that General preparatory exercises and tempos, and when I mean tempos, just the speed of execution, but that's just one law of specificity, et cetera, no longer have a positive correlation in improving sports-specific skills, yet it's overemphasized because why? They're trying to improve those combine results. The bench press test. using the squat to improve sprint speed and using other various, you know, sprinting drills, marching drills, cone drills, et cetera. What are those actually doing? Because they may not be obviously improving on skill performance. Like I talked about, they're not specific enough. What's being done clearly is not specific enough, but let's move forward. 
quote, while, and this is moving back to the article, I got two more slides here, quote, while maximal voluntary strength output and upper body muscle endurance can be significantly increased over years of appropriate training, the variables constituting maximum power output and speed do not exhibit similar changes in four years of high-level training. Again, is it high-level? Is it high-level? It's not getting the result we're looking for. It is noteworthy to mention that recruited players should already possess superior power and speed because these variables are particularly difficult to positively alter in four years of training at the college level. I mean, that appears to be a validated statement, as I kind of talked about. Recruited players should already possess superior power and speed. This is why recruiting is overemphasized. And the strength and conditioning budget won't grow. Is this why strength coaches are marginalized? I want you to think about that. Because if we want that to change, we have to change the way we're approaching this problem. And if a coach feels confident that, hey, I can spread this money a little bit more efficiently because I know I have a staff that will develop the speed I need for my offensive system or whatever, the, the athletes will be developed in a manner that I don't have to go out and compete and be competitive with bigger schools, with bigger budgets who may you know, be offering a little bit more than we can. So are we able to take and maximize athletes with less talent initially but who have great potential for growth and development. And even the five stars, they'll have good potential for growth and development. But I'm just saying is, if he knows, man, yeah, by, by sophomore year, we're looking good. They can plan accordingly. But if they don't know, if they don't know what they're getting, then they got to make sure they go out and get the guys who are the fastest. And that may, you know, be sacrificing a complete team. So just keep that in mind. When we're talking about should strength coaches unionize or should strength coaches, you know, our strength coaches marginalize, you know, do we want more respect, et cetera? Well, you got to prove it. Got to prove your worth first. So my ending thoughts to kind of end this. What does a strength coach really account for that is separate from a bodybuilding coach, an Olympic weightlifting coach, a powerlifting coach, a track and field coach? Or is a strength coach just one of these with a different name? If the sports performance realm instinctively believes that speed can't be developed, then our strength coaches are part of recruiting edges. Meaning that a strength coach is really a part of the recruiting process as far as marketing. We have these resources, we have this new facility, we have a strength coach who will cater to you, we have nutritionists. So it's more so of a marketing tactic than it actually is about providing some type of developmental value. So you're just a part of recruiting and marketing and not anything tangible that they actually believe will 
make a difference on the field other than presence and leadership and motivation. How much is that stuff worth? Clearly not what we think it is because we, you know, there wouldn't be discussion over more pay, more rights, unionization. Can strength coaches justify more respect, more pay, et cetera, until the field can prove that they can get athletes faster, consistently, and more powerful, the truth is strength coaches aren't worth all the hype. Anyone can get novices faster. Would Yuri Verhashansky change the results of this study if he were the strength coach? Would Yuri Verhashansky, if he was the one implementing the program for this team, would the results be different? If the answer is yes, we need to reevaluate the current paradigm. And this is the focus of my studies. Lastly, it's not that it's not possible contrary to what the article suggested, that speed is not cannot be positively improved over a four-year period with elite training. Training's not elite, can't be. Because if it was, it, we wouldn't be getting the result we're looking at. It appears, it appears, the individuals who are in charge of planning, programming, implementing, evaluating, analyzing, developing, creating, simply are not asking the right questions. Because in order to ask the right questions, which is a skill, you have to have the right perspective and the right understanding. What's important? So I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Actually, let me pull this back up for you. So again, I really appreciate everybody tuning in. You can sign up for our emailing list at athleticholisticsystems.com. And that's holistic with an H. And I'll have it pulled up on the screen here for you. Just scroll down and sign up for the email list. Podcast number three is something you won't want to miss. Huh, actually... Really quick, I wanna I wanna pull it up for you just really quick so that I kinda tease you a little bit about what's coming up next. Here it is, I have it pulling up on PowerPoint. Really quick for you. And so I talk about this live discussion over Major League Baseball's takeover over minor league baseball. Oh, actually, it's the wrong one. Sorry, I actually pulled up the wrong article. Here it is. All right, so. And I'm waiting. I'm actually waiting on it to pull up on the screen for you. But as it pulls up, there's a lot of talk over minor league baseball being taken over by major league baseball. And so I entitled the next podcast and the presentation called 
Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, 2021 and beyond. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, passionate outcomes versus dispassionate analysis. Oh, actually, I know what's happening here. This is why it's not pulling up. Let me... Let me see if this gets it pulled up now. Anyway, moving forward. So passionate outcomes versus dispassionate analysis. I want to keep you. Oh, here we go. So what I will cover. Oh, now it's put up on the screen. So what I will cover. Um, in this next podcast for number three is, are we sure that the MLB takeover of minor league baseball is best for baseball fans and minor league players? I talk about equitable um, or equal opportunity versus equal outcome. I talk about social justice or the symbolism of social justice versus the reality of economic empowerment. I discuss the data and the facts versus symbolism and belief. And it will focus on those facts the historical context and the trade-offs that Major League Baseball taking over minor league baseball will have on the future of baseball. And I present a warning message that, again, I will be talking about some things that may, you know, make people feel uncomfortable um, because, again, I'm about transparency and what the facts actually say. And so I will provide the historical context of player baseball agreements between minor league baseball and major league baseball in the past. So creating some context, I will discuss the save America's pastime act passed in 2018 as lobbied by both minor league baseball and major league baseball in 2018. I would discuss the major leagues or, and I would discuss the major league players association. So the union and implications for players under their first contracts. I would discuss the major league or major league baseball's control of minor league baseball and this would have happened anyway despite COVID-19 because the PBA was actually expiring in 2020 so this may have happened anyway despite COVID-19. I discussed the minor leaguers class action lawsuit that was filed. I talk about why minor league teams have fan bases that are over 50% women and you may not have known that that Minor league teams, women are some of their most or some of uh, are a bigger percentage of their fan bases, which is interesting. Hey, women love baseball. What they say, you know, what they say, women love the long ball. And lastly, is Major League Baseball the reason young baseball players are not becoming old baseball fans? So that's what you can tune into for podcast three. Again, I really appreciate you guys. Stand tuning in, listen. If you have any feedback, let me know. Sign up to the email list, write me an email. And I'm really excited about coming with this third one. Again, thank you for tuning in.